All right, guys. So we have another Q&A today with Abel Jabai. It's, uh, I don't know if you want to call this part one or part two, but basically we have, you know, a good number of questions on his channel, a good number of different questions on my channel. So um, but for the way we're doing it today, at least, the people who asked him questions, we're doing on his. People who asked me questions, we're doing on mine. Um, but we have a lot of the same audience, so I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy both. So just go over to the other channel uh, when you're done listening. So we'll uh, we'll dive right into these. Some of these that I have here, I mean, obviously the fact that we've announced that we're going to start doing Q and A's has resulted in more questions. So it, it could be hard to get to like everything. Um, also, if you are if you're just asking a question like in general, that's fine. Maybe like we'll make like individual videos on it. But if you're saying like this is for the Q and A, try to make it a question that's like I don't want to say easily answerable, but like somebody was asking about like, hey, can you dive into like like this whole system and like training and it was like it would be it would take a whole video to do like a, a just you know to do justice to the answer so um i would just say like try to keep in mind like what you're asking for um yep. so one I'll, I'll do is a uh, guy alden i think it's pronounced he he said um oh yeah support from africa so we're we got some good outreach here but he said uh two questions here so one that i, I thought was funny which we'll start with was uh you and Abel rate your own genetics out of 10. Um, <laughs> so do you want to start with that? So like, yeah, one to 10, how would you rate your genetics? Well, so let's define the endpoints first. So if, if one is the guy who just cannot put on any muscle and even his not hypertrophied physique looks kind of shit, like really bad <laughs> muscle bellies and body fat right. distribution and everything. And then 10 is, is Jared Feather, like, Peak natural Jared Feather is he a ten or and then there may be like a Doug Miller or pre steroid Ronnie Coleman that's like off the charts would that yeah. be a okay yeah, yeah. well okay so on that scale I would say I'm a pretty much a, a five or a six like yeah uh, right that that's that's pretty much what I would say what about you yeah I think so this was um, interesting because who was it somebody was talking about um on Leo and longevity and. It's funny because like in the pro bodybuilding scene, they'll actually talk quite a bit about how like people from like different ethnicities and regions of the world have like clearly different genetics. And I don't really think it's that controversial or at least it shouldn't be like even like from like when we learn um, like do like surgeries, right? They'll tell us like, you know, like the bone mineral density is higher in like young black males, for instance. So like this is like even like medically, this is studied. Um, and, and so when you look at it, like, or for example, like the top, like out of the top 10, Mr. Olympia, like, I think like seven or eight are African American. Right. And, and so there are differences in different parts of the world and like different like ethnicities. So we are both, or I, I don't know if you, are you, you do consider yourself like just white able cause like you're European, but I know it's like, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm definitely white. Uh, yeah, I have, well, a, have a better tan than you. <laughs> there was a, a girl who said, "Well, you're not white; you're Italian." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I'm white. Anyway, um, but you know, if you compare to like other like six foot Caucasian males who were to put 15 years into it, sometimes I think that. I'd have to be below average when I look at that. Like when I look at like everybody, I do feel like my physique is, well, obviously it's above average because not everybody's trying. Um, but if you compare it to like, like everybody, I would say just like what you said, Abel, I would say like five, five and a half, like pretty much like dead average. 
But yeah. when I compare to other people who I would say like are similar to me, maybe it's just like who I hung out with. But I really do feel like most people would be further than I am if they did everything I did. You know, like if I look at like my friends in college, they were all between like, not all, but like, you know, it's like five, nine to like six, three. Um, and honestly, like some of them looked way better than me within like three or four years of lifting. And I don't know too many who put in a ton of effort who looked worse than me. You know, like a lot of people looked like about the same as me and we were all kind of similar. But I mean, when I look at like my five or six, like close friends, you know, maybe like one of them put in an, not even the equal effort, but like a lot of effort and look a little bit worse. But like my brother within like four or five years was basically as impressive as I was physique wise, not strength wise. Strength wise, I'd say I'm, I'm better than um, physique wise. But yeah, I would have to say when I look at those people, I put in like so much. So I, I don't know, maybe like like a four or something like that, you know, I, I, if I had to say. Yeah, it's really hard to tell because like most people that we know just didn't put in as much work as, as we did. Um, and it, it's also like what, so what are we looking at when we talk about genetics? Is it just pure like ability to put on muscle? Um, because then I would say that if I just like look around on Instagram, which is like maybe not the best place to compare, but there I will see a lot of guys who have been training between five and 15 years. I would say I pretty much have the physique like somewhere in that realm as what most people have. But then right. if I look at someone like Sotak, we do a lot of these podcasts together. We are like, like basically same exact height or stats are basically the same, uh, like weight at different body fat percentages. And like from the back, like I couldn't even hold a candle like like next mm -hmm. to him. Like he's like I I have like basically compared to him, I look like I don't even lift from the back. From the front, I'm definitely more blessed because I just have a more favorable body fat distribution. Mm -hmm. So it's like you know, so okay, who has better genetics? So there is some of that, but then yeah. So if if I consider like a peak Jared Feather natural as as like ten out of ten then yeah, I would have to be like at least like five, six points below him, I would say. But but yeah. I can definitely see a lot of guys that just don't get anywhere. Um, right. So And the other side to that, you know, what I said is, um, you know, I'm making it seem like, oh, well, we're like about the same size, but I know I tried way, way harder than them for a lot longer. So then by that, I think, oh, well, that's so if they did what I did, they'd be even bigger than I did, than I am. But that actually is then assuming that, it, or it's almost ignoring the fact of all the other stuff we talk about that, like, hey, most of your gains are going to be in those first five years. Hey, you know, 80, you know, these, these like, you know, if you're just doing most things correctly, you're going to get most of the size. So it's possible that these people, my brother included, wouldn't have actually even gotten that much bigger with another 10 years or so. You know, that's what we say about natural trainees all the time, right? So I remember thinking my brother's like going to surpass me. And then it just never happened because he just kind of stopped being as consistent. But um, you know, if we're assuming yeah. natural trainees that maybe just would have stopped anyway. So. Yeah. But, uh, just, just one thing and then we can move on. But, but also like, um, you know, like the, the whole idea of like, you make most of it in the first couple of years like that, I see like that that's definitely true in general, but I'm seeing in the last like couple of years, more and more case studies where that's just not the case. And that can mm -hmm. easily extend out to like 10 years. Simply yeah. because, like, there you can just fuck up so many things, right. um, and I definitely see it in, in my, some of my clients. Like, 
I've been training for four years. Like it doesn't mean anything. And even mm-hmm. I think you said that uh, when you were like getting super frustrated um, and even considered like maybe going the enhanced route, you were like into lifting for like seven years or something. Yeah, um, but in my case, I think it was a little bit different because I started so young. I started at 12. True. So, you know, it, I could have been really doing everything perfect for five years. But by 17, like nobody's maxed out at 17 years old. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? You just you haven't gone through enough. Life. True. Yeah, <laughs> um, true. All right. So uh, that same guy had a second part, and he just said your experience with uh, he called it zero drinks. So I'm, sh- I'm sure he means zero calorie drinks and bloating slash water retention. So we kind of touched on that a little bit in your Q and A. If you want um, yeah. more detail there, but I would just say that I, I mean, obviously there's going to be bloating um, because a lot of these beverages are carbonated, so that's not surprising. Um, you're also probably just going to take in more fluid and more volume than you would otherwise. Um, I think they're fine though. Like, you know, health wise, you know, there's debate on like if they're okay. I, I think they're probably fine for most people. I actually think they can be really helpful during a diet. Um, I don't drink them personally, but I, I think they're fine too, as long as you're not having like two liters a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as I said in, in part one of this or the other part, uh, on my channel, first of all, make friends with bloating to some extent when you're dieting, like, like <laughs> yeah. some reasonable amount of bloating is your friend. It, it, it's going to keep you fuller. And, uh, the, the thing with diet drinks is if you drink them between meals, sometimes it can be good as like an emergency option just to get you through another like half an hour or whatever until you get to your meal but often they will actually make you hungrier like it's nice drinking but after that you will be just hungry especially if it's non-caffeinated which it should be unless your sleep is like bulletproof otherwise Mm -hmm. um but what you can do is actually drink it like right before a meal or maybe even like during the meal and if you're cutting calories pretty hard, it can make you a lot fuller, actually. Like, because it basically pre-stretches your stomach, especially if it's carbonated. It's kind of a diet hack that you can make use of. So, right, right, cool, cool. Um, let's see. All right, so we'll do a uh, next one goes to Wes because he's a loyal. Follower, oh, yeah. I think for both of us. Um, how important is it to you to get your hydration on point currently at four liters per day? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I tend to just go off of urine color. So if, uh, if it's like a clear or like lightly yellow, uh, then I'm happy with it. Uh, probably if you're like, if your urine is always so clear that it's indistinguishable from water then might you might actually be drinking too much like you don't want to mm-hmm. be washing out electrolytes and minerals and um but if it, it looks like freaking tea all the time then probably you should be drinking uh, more and you know occasional blood work is 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 also useful so if you do blood work and you're you know, hematocrit is like uh, super out of whack, then probably that might be an indication that uh, you're not hydrated enough. Yeah, or you need to lower the PED dosage. So (laughs) I, uh, yeah, I I think this is honestly like, I don't even like think about hydration much just because I just, people talk about it's like, oh my God, it's so important. And it's like, it's important if you're chronically dehydrated, but it's, it's just not an overly complicated thing. You know, like if you're having somewhere between six with you know on the low end and like 16 cups of water a day you know so like maybe half a gallon to a gallon a day you're fine 
you know, people with like, well, I mean, I've heard, uh, there was two bodybuilders talking about, you know, if you're not getting up every half an hour to pee, you're not drinking enough. And it's just like, that's just such a classic dumb bodybuilder way to think about things. Like just yeah. everything's got to be taken to the extreme. Like, what do you think you're getting from three gallons of water that you don't get from one? Like, it's just like, it was just the, the epitome of just like a dumb bodybuilder mindset that you would just think that somehow that's just going to enhance everything. You know, I do think hydration is important. And obviously like if you're on peds, like you, you got to worry about your kidney health and things like that. But the idea that it's just like, you know, going to drive everything to be maximized by having that much is ridiculous. You know, you got to be hydrated enough. And beyond that, don't worry about it. Yeah. And so it's actually also a myth that it like super important for performance, like acutely, actually, like for many athletes, uh, the slight drop in body weight just with like drinking less water is actually well worth the trade off because uh, like hydration actually acutely often has like fairly minimal impact on like sport performance. So I yeah. just want to throw that in there. Cool. cool. Um, let's see. Good one. Okay. Um, Max Massetti asked what to do if you're feeling run down a few sessions before a deload and what do you do with calories during a deload? So I would say that, and again, this is, you know, are you feeling run down? Like if you have like a 12 week plan, and you're feeling run down at like week six, then all right, you clearly like misjudged how much you can take. Uh, and, and I would just, you might need to deload, but when you then make your next programming decisions, make sure that you're incorporating more recovery because you obviously misjudged, assuming this isn't due to like some weird life circumstance, right? Like you just had like a crazy week of horrible sleep or you just had a baby or, you know, whatever craziness is going on. Um, if it's just a few sessions, and you're not doing this from a powerlifting standpoint, because if you're doing powerlifting, you might be peaking for a specific competition, in which case you may feel run down. And then you can get into a whole argument of does peak week or does, does peaking really matter for powerlifting? That's a whole nother thing. But um, if you have a plan like that, I would stick to the plan in most situations. Obviously, there's going to be some circumstances where that doesn't apply. Um, but if you're doing this from like a bodybuilding standpoint and you're just like in a massing phase and you're just feeling more run down, I don't see any issue with just starting to deload a little bit early in that case. Um, and as far as calories, I usually just keep calories the same. Um, some people feel like, if, especially if they're massing, um, that they should just, well, this is a good time to diet or do a diet break. And it's just like, dude, like you're talking like one week, just recover, maybe eat at maintenance. Um, if you are dieting, I would say when I deload, eat at maintenance. I, I would probably not still have a big deficit when dieting. Do I think it's a huge deal? No, but I'd probably in most cases just eat at maintenance during deload. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree on the, well, on both aspects, but the nutritional aspect, I don't even have anything to add to and not so much to the other aspect either. But uh, as we talked about this on the last Q&A that was on my channel, um, not not this particular, like two weeks ago or so, I'm, I'm for hypertrophy training. I'm a big believer in sustainable programming. So I don't necessarily program in a way where right. you would feel after week 12 any more that you would need to deload than after week three. Um, right. So I think uh, in an ideal scenario, maybe from a mental perspective, like if you're, especially if you're like not super, super motivated and enjoying the hell out of your training, uh, it's it's normal to feel it a bit more over time. But I think in an ideal scenario in my world, 
you would only deload as a kind of as a just in case policy. Let's let's just make sure that I'm not tearing anything up or whatever. Focus on other things a little bit, but um, I don't I don't really believe in this concept of like as the weeks go by, you're more and more tired because fatigue accumulates. I think fatigue should only kind of match what your uh, what your rate of adaptation is. So you right. always stress yourself, you adapt to it. Next time you stress yourself a bit more, but your adaptations also go up. So fatigue and fitness kind of always stay at a relatively constant level relative to one another. So only thing I would add. Cool. Um, Dario Stone says, how is it that performance enhancing drugs became the norm in bodybuilding despite being generally illegal? Um, so that's more of like a speculation oh. question but how, how come that uh, amphetamines became the norm in discos despite being illegal i mean right yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> people are just always going to do you know what they can do to get an advantage so i don't think it's really that surprising i mean not to mention a lot of these organizations of course they know what's going on um in sports they knew what was going on i mean obviously like in some countries like in russia i mean they're entire they have entire um you know setups around this like design their government helps them cheat. I think somebody, what was the quote I heard? Somebody said in America, they will like put you in jail for trying to cheat or like ban you in Russia. The government helps you. So like, <laughs> you know, what do you think is going to happen in that case? But, um, I think it's just one of those things that like a lot of people just turn their head to, uh, you know, um, they kind of just put their head in the sand. And I mean, Ronnie Coleman was like a police officer. Right. And, and so I, I think people kind of know what's going on. Most people don't care because it's not like they're hurting people for the most part like they're not like hurting other people um so i mean i think it's interesting i just don't think it's surprising and i think you know who's who's enforcing it you know like who's going after these people they do go after um drug dealers you know a lot of people who sell them but like for users and i mean you, you do hear that all the time if you're selling gear um you know it a lot of people they say like it's just a matter of time until you get busted but for individual users I don't really think there's that much of a risk to it. Um, and obviously it, it makes a massive difference in terms of physique. So I think it's kind of uh, understandable that it would become popular in bodybuilding. Yeah. And I mean, also keep in mind that um, as, as per my latest information on this, it's not like we think that it's just in like bodybuilding where people abuse steroids. But like, as far as I know, it's in every sport, like every single elite athlete that you know of. Uh, no matter how nice they seem and whatever, and or not even jacked, and you wouldn't would never think, like basically all of them are using performance enhancing drugs. It was a bit of an like a, a world shattering moment for me when I asked one of these people, like, so like all my heroes, like Messi and Ronaldo and whatever, like this this boxer, like all of them. It's like yes, all of them. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I'm actually really curious, like how do they? Like, is it that their, like, strength and conditioning coach or their nutritionist is, like, bringing them the peels when they're having, uh, I don't know, breakfast at the training facility? Or how does right. this happen? Or they're, like, individually sorting it for themselves? I'm really curious how that works, but I guess I will never know. Right. Okay. Um, so a lot of diet and diet uh, soda questions. So this will be the last one, I think, for these Q&As. But somebody said, nasty net is the username. Uh, while diet soda probably doesn't have the negative health effects that people like to fear monger about, is going ham on diet soda like some people do during a cut generally bad for your teeth? What do you think, Abel? <laughs> <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> 
All right, um, so everybody sit back. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and then the second part of that is I've noticed that I share a lot of the same neurotic tendencies that you share in your podcast. What tips do you have for moving away from them? Can they sometimes be beneficial or at least neutral enough that they're not something to worry about? So I'll keep the answer on teeth short and say that, yeah, they're not great for it. Um, there's a combination of the acidity uh, as well as the sugar. Uh, so sugar, you know, obviously not great for your teeth. Acidity, also not good. So even the, the diet sodas. So that's just for soda in general. Um, but even diet sodas, they are more acidic. And so like one of the worst things for your teeth is to just be constantly like washing them with these liquids. That's why like if you have just like a really sugary meal, that's not nearly as bad as like, you know, just like having like seven up, just sipping it all day, all day. Um, if you're that worried about your teeth, use a straw and then you, you more or less mitigate it. But yeah, I mean, it's not great. Um, as far as weaning off of them. Yeah, honestly, I, I don't even remember why I did. I think I eventually just got like I used to when I was like really dieting hard and I like, just didn't have a great mindset. I think I was having like probably a liter of like diet cream soda a day like I was drinking a lot of it and eventually I just got this like yeah I know some people do a lot like even more but uh I just kind of got this like gross like perma sweet taste in my mouth like it was just like between that and sugar-free jellos I was just like oh I just like it was always like there and I just I just didn't like it after a while and actually now it just doesn't appeal to me so um I guess you know thankfully for me it was super easy um but like anything you could imagine, you would just taper off, have less and less, fill it with other things, maybe go to half soda, half water. Um, you know, there's tips. I don't know if it's super helpful for me to go into all of them. You could probably, I don't want to dismiss the question. I just think it's that, you know, in a lot of these things, it's like, how do I get off coffee? Well, okay, you, you wean yourself off, right? Until eventually you're not having as much unless you have yeah. other thoughts able. Yeah, like one, one thing is that many times these things kind of take care of themselves once you're not dieting super hard right. so like like usually the people who abuse either caffeine super well okay caffeine is a bit different because like if your sleep is chronically shit but maybe it just became shit because you were dieting too hard and you started abusing it uh or maybe you know with the diet sodas you started filling in the gaps with more and more diet soda as your calories got lower and you're like man how am i ever gonna get out of this and then you actually start eating more and just intuitively you will be like man like i actually don't feel like eating a whole whatever liter of this stuff after this meal because i'm actually pretty full like it would gross me out so it just kind of happens it happened to me like multiple times so i, I wouldn't yeah. worry about it super much cool um so Cole Henry, he actually just asked me another question this morning. We'll see if we can get to both. But he said, uh, and Cole, this is probably more touched on at the end of Abel's Q&A. So I check out that one as well. Uh, for an intermediate lifter, how often should you expect weight or rep increases within sets given sleep and nutrition are sound? I think I've heard Borgay mention that if you hit the same number during the next training session on that exercise, you may as well just stop because you haven't recovered properly to increase the load and reps. So uh, we really did touch on that a lot on his last one. Um, I don't agree with that quote. I'd have to see what he actually uh, he, he, said. He, I highly doubt he said that because I just recently consulted on him or, or him on this uh, recently and he definitely yeah. didn't say that. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that he would say. I mean, yeah, feel free to you know post below where you saw that, but I... It, it would shock me because, I mean, that's literally the definition, not, you know, depending on the def like who, whose definition you're using, but a lot of people will define it as beginners can add weight every session. 
intermediates can add it like maybe every week to every month and then advanced it could be months before adding weight again so if you're intermediate like almost by definition you're not going to increase reps or weight every single time i mean that'd be ridiculous to assume that that's going to happen so um and again intermediate is such a huge range you know i mean somebody who's like two years in or somebody who's like seven years in could still be an intermediate so um as far as like how often if it's been at least if it's been three or four sessions and it's exactly the same and you're again you're an intermediate like me that happens all the time i always do the same weights <laughs> mm-hmm. but if, if you're an intermediate um after about three or four like you said i would look at the sleep i look at the nutrition is you know are the number of sets appropriate um and if all of those things check out then maybe i'd look at like some training variability you know maybe you could you switch exercises and come back later um you know i'm not a huge fan of switching exercises all the time but i do think there's some utility in doing that depending on the reason um obviously like injuries would be one so yeah i mean it, i would say if you're going more than three or four sessions that's something to look into yeah i i think um it also depends heavily on uh, the micro loadability of of what you're using. So I think uh, for intermediates, like something on, on in the order of one or two percent increase per session is reasonable. Um, but you know, if you're an intermediate and you're bench pressing with seventy kilos or eighty kilos or something for like sets of uh, eight to ten or something you know, one or 2% increase might be actually below what the least load is that you can actually add to the bar. And that's even worse Some machines, like leg extensions, whatever, like dumbbell lateral raises. Like if you go from the, whatever, five kilo lateral raise, or yeah, it's the, from the five kilo dumbbells to the six kilo dumbbells on the lateral raise, that's, what is that? Like that's a 20% increase, or I would mm-hmm. have to do the math. So, but what I like to tell people, is uh, look at maybe your average rate of progress over like say a month and if you see that on average like say over a month it went up by at least four percent your performance then you're on the right track if it's like significantly below that then probably something is off yeah cool uh let's see so i know uh, this is one of my clients dom i know he's gonna want me to answer this is uh when is it best to use carb cycling in a cutting routine and is there a benefit to carb cycling on higher calories when bulking? So um, Abel and I might have significantly different answers here. So do you want to go first, Abel? You want to go? I'll go first because I have to collect my thoughts on this a bit. Okay. So, um, yeah, he, he had been asking me about carb cycling quite a bit. And I think I don't do much with anything with carb cycling anymore other than, like, if you just want to. Um, but like for a while, like that was a big topic. I mean, they're like on T nation, Shelby Starnes wrote all about carb cycling. And then, um, what's his name? Justin something. He was like a DC training guy too. Um, but yeah, they were like really big on carb cycling and you know, you want to have your high carb days on like your back and your leg days and then your moderate carb days and then here. And then other people start talking about, well, look, like, why would you do that? You would want the carbs for those training sessions. So maybe that makes sense if you train at night. But if you train in the morning, now you're just getting the carbs afterwards. You wouldn't have the high carbs. And this, this is why I don't think it really matters much because I used to do that and I was very calculated with it. I'd have like the two high days and the two medium days and the three low days. And it just didn't really end up mattering that much because, like I said, what if you 
like, okay, I'm going to plan this really high carb day on my back day. If I work out at 5 a.m., well, that didn't really help my back day then, did it? I mean, you could say from recovery after, you know, I don't think from like a glycogen replenishment standpoint, it matters at all. Um, I think when I've done very low carb, now again, I've never noticed much of a difference. Some people really do notice a big difference with carb intake, just in general on how they feel. I don't, um, other than that I have slightly more stable levels when I'm eating lower carbs, but otherwise not like a huge difference. Um, and I, but I just don't think it matters. Like, okay, so you have, let's say you throw in 500 grams of carbs the day before your back day. What is that really doing for you? I mean, you weren't running out of glycogen during that back workout, unless you're doing this extremely high volume back workout, which, you know, we usually wouldn't recommend anyway. So what is it actually doing? Is it just psychologically you feel full and like you're going to be able to kill it in the gym? Okay. But I mean, you're just kind of convincing yourself of that. So, um, now that's like what I'm talking about, like when bulking up, but even when cutting, when cutting, I could see a little bit more utility, um, so basically, short answer on the bulking, I don't think it matters much at all. Um, for the cutting, I do think, and you know, you could see extensively Abel and I talking about uh, refeeds, and he's had like Menno on to talk about a lot. It's been talked about more recently. Um, I think there are some benefits if you're really low carb most days to occasionally throw in like a higher carb day. Um, some people really do, I don't notice a huge difference on that, but some people really do. I mean, some people notice a big difference when they'll throw in, you know, when they have their high day, the next day or that day, they feel stronger and then they feel better. I don't think from a fat loss standpoint, it makes much of a difference at all. And I think that's where you and I talked a lot about the deloading stuff or the, um, the refeeding stuff. Um, but from like an energy standpoint, maybe a little bit strength in the gym standpoint. Yeah. For some people. I do think that actually can be beneficial. Um, I don't tend to do it in carb cycling, like the traditional carb cycling, like, you know, too medium and too high or whatever. I just would call them like refeeds, you know, like twice a week I have a refeed is, is what I would call it, which is a, just a form of carb cycling. Um, so maybe it would be like five moderate, too high or something like that. Um, I think there's some utility. I'm still convinced <laughs> some utility uh, when dieting for that. Yeah, so I think um, like in general, like let, let's say for bulking first, um, I think the answer to this, if you're just doing hypertrophy training, so you're not also playing soccer or something like that, I think the answer to this for me at the moment mainly depends on what the what later research will come out on what some like uh, late... late um, research indicates that even some more minor depletion in glycogen can actually meaningfully impact your performance because like one of the longest lived kind of arguments against uh, the importance of carbohydrates for training in general is that you're only depleting like a fraction of your total glycogen stores with super, super hardcore workouts. So this whole idea of needing intra-workout carbs and pre-workout carbs or basically any carbs in your diet is quite foolish because you might be depleting, you know, 40% of your glycogen or 40% of your like local glycogen in your quads with like an ungodly leg workout and then within 24 hours basically like 99% of it is resynthesized resynthesized without any carbs in the diet so then like where is the justification for like these carb loading protocols after the workout so that you can replete your glycogen faster unless you're planning on doing another leg workout later in the day 
it's pointless. So that was right. the argument. Anecdotally, we also seem to see that because tons of people have w gone from eating high carbs to going keto or even like carnivore and didn't notice any drop in performance except for maybe the initial period when they were just adapting to the whole thing and they were feeling lethargic in general. So that was the argument. But now there is some research that indicates that, well, you know, don't take that 40% depletion lightly because that can already have a meaningful impact. So maybe yeah. there is some utility for like pre-workout carbs and intra-workout carbs. So let's see what comes out of that. But assuming that the evidence so far actually lives up to what we thought of it, um, I would say that there is a good argument for calorie cycling, both during bulking and cutting, especially if you have, say, like three, four training days a week and you have the rest days in between. That I think it could make some sense to eat lower calories on rest days, more calories on training days, more calories in the anabolic window. Maybe you can make use of that nutrient partitioning effect of the workouts and um, partition more towards muscle growth, less towards fat gain. Um, so I think that has some good, uh, utility corp cycling, uh, you know, that would have to mean that there is a specific justification for cycling that particular nutrient. And is there any, maybe, uh, so far my stance was there just, there is just not, but, uh, let's see what uh, we find out about it later. Uh, for now, I would say I, I just wouldn't do it. I would cycle calories overall, but not carbs specifically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, inherently, like the refeeds, they become calorie cycling and carb cycling. I do think you, you did touch on some of that newer research that Eric Chexler had, I think, brought to light um, yeah. in like a mass research review where they talked about the, uh, you know, people would say, oh, well, you only deplete maybe 30, 40% of your glycogen, but they were finding that that's muscle specific for the most part. So, yeah, maybe overall you've depleted, you know, 30, 40% of glycogen. But if that's like largely from the muscle that you're working, then maybe, you know, maybe that actually does matter. Um, and like I said, just to be clear, I, I do think there's some utility. Um, you know, somebody's eating like 100 grams of carbs every single day and then they have like a 400 gram carb day and they can tolerate that, you know, GI wise after like the sudden change. I, I think there can be benefits from it. I just think some people definitely overthink it. Yeah. So, all right, this will be the last one for today. We got the most of them. There's a couple I didn't get to, but um, let's see. So um, the person asked, Naked Polar Bear asked, um, can you dive into different training frequencies, different interpretations of available research and anecdotal evidence? So this is one of those ones where it's like, look, like that, that would take like an entire video. Oh, um, yeah. So I will just briefly touch on my thoughts on different training frequencies. Um, so overall, again, if you ask me what can we do to get somebody as big as possible in a year, my answer may very well be different than, hey, what's going to get us like the biggest size? Not that the optimal in that year is not going to get you to the biggest size, but more like, does it matter longer term? And those are very different questions, right? I mean, I think even like Mike Isertel and a lot of these people who focus on these like really, um, I wouldn't say tiny details, but they focus on like getting everything right. I think even they would admit that like longer term, it might not matter. Um, and if you're competing or something, then you do want to get it as fast as possible, right? You have a certain window to compete. And so those things can matter. So again, if somebody said to me, hey, I'm trying to put as much size as possible on in a year, I would probably have them training with at least two, maybe three times per week frequency. Um, beyond that, I don't know if there'd be much of a difference at all, but 
yeah, if somebody said like, you know, I just want to make as much possible, as much growth as possible, I probably would have them on a three times per week frequency, like each body part hit three times per week. Or I might do some like phases where like, okay, you know, some muscle groups are getting hit three or four times a week and the other ones are on one or two and then switch, you know, because obviously your body's going to have some limited capacity to recover. Um, longer term, do I think it makes a huge difference? Not really. Um, one, you have to consider like joint health. Like I have a friend who is a um, physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist. He's an MD or a DO. And uh, he is like really well versed in, in that research. And he's a big fan of a body part split. Now, this is a guy who's like, again, aware of like everybody in the fitness space. He's followed all of them. Um, he's followed a lot of the same guys that I've followed. But he just likes the body part split. He enjoys it more. But he also really feels that like over time, he'll admit that like on like a short term basis, two or three times per week frequency might be better. But he's been lifting almost as long as I have. And he's been he's, you know, he's pretty impressive. Um, and you also have like all of these bodybuilders, these professional bodybuilders who almost all of them do a body part split. Um, there's some argument that I don't know if I've seen a lot of research for this, but some will argue that there is a per session volume that's required. You know, they will argue, well, if you just do two sets six days a week, that's just not going to be enough. You need to at least get, you know, X number of sets. I've seen a number of people say that now in the last couple of years. I don't know if there's research on that, um, but he would argue that like, there's a certain amount, there's a certain stimulus per session that you need. Um, and he's very big on like joint health and longevity. And so he would argue that at like two, three times per week uh, frequency, you're more likely to get like tendonitis and different tendinopathies compared to just one time per week. So um, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a long monologue. So yeah, in uh, in one go, I'd say yes, I do think there's a benefit. Um, but long, long term, I don't think it's a huge difference. Yeah, like as you were speaking, I realized like yeah, we we could do an entire like 45 minute one at least just on this. But um, yeah. like. Yeah, I like the only thing basically that you said, the only thing I don't agree with is the stance of these people who say that like only two sets uh, a session is not enough. I, I would love to see if they have any reference for that because like that yeah, that to me classically seems like one of those things that like the, you know, go to go and, and piss as many times during the day as possible. Like it <laughs> kind of sounds cool, but are you just pulling it out of your butt? So because um, if you think about it, like, What's the highest quality session or set you will ever do is the first one. What's the second one? The second set. Like basically yeah. everything else like diminishing returns after that. So if you're only restricting yourself to that and you're repeating that like many, many times, I would actually expect the quality of the the overall training split to increase over time um, and even acutely. And anecdotally, I've been doing things like that for a long time and it works great for me, but of course it's n equals one. I I would say that the maximum session or maximum sets per session, and uh, that like after that basically just uh, that turning into junk volume. I think if like I think that makes sense, and um, so basically based on that we could say like okay, if even if you're doing twenty sets for a muscle group per week, two sets two sessions might cut it and anything else over that you're not really gaining anything like tangible and it just comes down to volume distribution personal preference fatigue management enjoyment management um, I can tell you that I like to train myself and also a lot of my clients with a three or four frequency per muscle group and mm -hmm. I find that they just like it generally because each session is very manageable like you never do more than 
like three sets generally for a muscle group and you can still get in a very respectable amount of volume per week um a lot of people enjoy not having to do a leg day where they need to hammer their quads with a whole bunch of exercises. They only do like three sets of squats here, three sets of leg extensions, three sets of split squats, split squats, three sets of leg presses. And there you go. Like that's 12 high quality sets for your quads per week. So yeah. I like, like doing that a lot, but I think anything beyond twice a week, I think the, like the diminishing returns are pretty severe and uh you know i just made an instagram post about it recently like your exact split is not gonna make your or break your progress like there are tons of people who have gotten huge or have remained small on all the different splits imaginable and different training frequencies right. so just keep that in for mind sure. for sure for sure all right guys so that is going to wrap up this one uh you know keep sending the q a's i'm enjoying these you know it's kind of just like a casual one so uh it makes it easier to help a lot of people rather than just answering their dms so feel free to send them and we will make sure to get to them yeah thank you guys